Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. I heard last week when I was here, it was really warm in the sanctuary, and I feel like it's a little chilly today, and I'm not sure if that's just because I'm nervous or if it's actually chilly. I don't know, but it's great. There you go. It's just me then. Wonderful. (laughs) Okay. How many of you have watched The Chosen? Some of you maybe have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you, I, I think it's on a streaming service, so if you don't have that streaming, then you're probably out of loop. I don't know. Mike and I have started to watch it. We have not watched the whole thing, so I don't even know if it's complete yet. So that's my knowledge on The Chosen. But I will say that, let me make a little bit of a, like I know it's not perfect. I know that they use a lot of creative license in what they do. I know that not everything Jesus says is recorded scripture. I know all of that. So you don't need to correct me on that. I know that. (laughs) But I really have enjoyed what I have learned, seeing, um, just seeing the experience, just seeing what, what they're wearing, the fact that the disciples are wearing the same clothes every scene, right? Like, I don't think about that. Or just the lifestyle of Jesus, the disciples, and the people in that time, I have found very enlightening for me as I've watched it. This morning, we're going to look at a parable uh, in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. And as I read the scripture for this morning, I'm gonna invite you to imagine yourself there in real time, listening to the conversation between Jesus and the chief priests and elders. What would you be wearing? What smells would you smell? What sounds would you hear? Can you see Jesus or can you just hear his voice? But before I read, let me set the stage for you a bit. Jesus is in the temple teaching. You've heard about or seen by, for firsthand his entry into Jerusalem, which just happened a few days ago. We now call that Palm Sunday. You've heard about or seen him turn over the tables in the temple. Your curiosity is growing. What's going on? What's happening with Jesus? What's happening with the chief priests and the elders? So you make your way to the temple, and you find Jesus is talking with the chief priests and other leaders. You've heard them ask Jesus where he gets his authority to do the things he's done, but he doesn't actually answer them. You've heard Jesus tell the parable of the two sons. One says he will obey the father, but he doesn't. The other says he won't or he doesn't want to, but he actually does. And you've heard Jesus say that prostitutes and tax collectors have paved the way of faith but the chief priests and the elders have not repented and believed. And you aren't even done processing all of that, and Jesus says, listen to another parable. And so I invite you, as you listen, what do you see, what do you hear, how do you feel? What do you think Jesus is trying to teach? Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, a watchtower. 
Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers who moved in and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to, to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will, will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone whom, on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So what did you hear Jesus say? How does this make you feel? What does this make you think about Jesus? Well, the first time I read this at the beginning of the week, I was kind of taken back by the tone of the parable. It seemed kind of violent. It seemed a little bit too un-Jesus-like for me. But then I read it again and again, and I studied, and I realized that what we might first think is a parable about a vengeful or judging God is actually a story overflowing with Jewish symbolism, and the heart of this story is a desire of God for his people to simply accept and believe in Jesus. I said the timing of this was significant. From the chief priest and the elders' perspective, Jesus had done some pretty big stuff recently. And while we've known for a while that he's at a minimum annoying the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, but with the clearing of the temple, I think it would be safe to say that he's getting close to the straw that's gonna break their backs. He's just called them out for not believing who he is. And I think it's safe to say they were probably pretty offended about the thing he said about tax collectors and prostitutes paving the way ahead of them in faith. And in terms of timing for Jesus, we're getting to the end. He knows his time is coming to a close and he has things he wants to say before things change for him rather significantly. If you are a bystander, as Jesus was teaching this parable, I think it's safe to say you were probably Jewish. And so I want to point out a few of the elements that this parable has that would have meaning to the Jewish audience that for those of us who are 21st century Americans, we may not get. First, we have the vineyard that was created by the landowner. And we can see references to God as the creator. But I think more than that, through the details that Jesus gives in describing the creating of the vineyard, we see that the tenants are provided with very good accommodations for optimal growing. Now, something that happens throughout the New Testament is a reference to a psalm or a prophet or something from the law, things that we can find in the Old Testament that most of us may not immediately make the connection. But I think it's safe to say that for the Jewish audience, or specifically for the religious leaders, when they hear this description of the vineyard, 
there would be an almost automatic connection to them to Isaiah 5, in which God refers to the house of Israel as his vineyard, which he created, tended, and desired good fruit. But in the end, they went their own way. Isaiah 5.2, in Isaiah 5.2 it says, He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Now Jesus isn't quoting verbatim, but that's pretty close to how Jesus just described this vineyard. In Isaiah 5.7 it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard the cries of distress. So it seems to me it wouldn't take long for those hearing Jesus to get the connection, that there's a reminder of the ways Israel has not exactly been the people that God had desired for them to be. And then we have this distant landlord. It was quite common for a landowner to set things up, have tenants work work the land, and then at harvest for them to come back and receive some level of payment for the rent from the tenants. I think it's safe to say, just like in our day, there are good and fair landlords, and there are some who are not. But we have no indication in this parable that this landowner was anything but fair. So it would be a common understanding for the Jewish people that a landowner sends a messenger or servants, and they go after the harvest to collect his produce. But in this parable, the tenants beat, kill, and stone the first set. Then he sends a larger contingent, and they do the same thing. Again, it would not be hard for the Jewish people to see the similarities between this parable and the prophets that God sent to the Israelites, who they refused to listen to, they turned their backs on, and they killed some. So finally, the landowner sends his son, saying they will respect him. This, again, would be an expectation of Jewish culture that a son would receive the respect due his father. So while my, some may think it's naive for the father to send his son, this is Jewish culture. This is the way it would be. This is all fine. What is unusual is the assumption that the tenants have that they will get his inheritance if they kill the son. First off, the landowner hasn't even died, so nobody's getting an inheritance right now. And secondly, because you kill someone, especially someone you're not related to, you're probably not going to get their inheritance. But this is where we need to take a little time out, because this is not an actual event. This is a story that Jesus is telling. And so why does Jesus use this idea of getting the inheritance as part of the profile he's creating for us to understand these tenants. That's kind of intriguing to me, and I'll get back to it a little bit later. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but this is actually kind of the end of the story that Jesus is telling, because it's not Jesus who answers what happens to the tenants. Instead, he asks the chief priests and the elders what will happen. So the elders finish the story by saying that the landowner should destroy those wretches and let someone else work the land who will, produ- who will follow the rules. To tell you the truth, this is where I misread the parable when I first read it. And it set an entirely different tone for me as I looked at it. The first time I read it, I thought Jesus was saying that God would put those wretches to a miserable death. And that's where it just sounded like a judgment. It it just seemed harsh. It seemed a little out of character for me, for Jesus, in this setting. 
I suppose if you are reading along and you have a red letter Bible, the one that has Jesus' words written in red, you might have not have made the mistake I did. But it was so helpful for me when I realized that these were not Jesus' words. They were the elders' words. And in that case, the tone just, it made more sense to me. One commentator put it this way, the chief priests and elders' answer was based on their desires, on their values. It was based on their nature, not God's. Or as another commentator put it, their impulsive response is an image of vengeance. It's not surprising that they project their human instinct onto a God whom they do not know well. They've spent three years denying this person of Jesus as a representation of God. So how can they know God? But at this point, Jesus doesn't affirm or deny how the landowner will respond. Instead, he flips the whole thing over. Jesus turns this entire interaction on its head by saying, haven't you read the scriptures that the one who was rejected is the one the Lord will build everything upon? It's kind of a mic drop moment, like he's going along in this parable and all of a sudden, boom, but don't you know? Just like the vineyard reference earlier, all who were within earshot of Jesus would have known immediately, maybe, maybe not all the Jewish people, but definitely those chief priests, those elders, they would have known that Jesus was quoting a portion of Psalm 118. I want to pause and I want to read a little bit more of this psalm that Jesus just quoted because it's not a psalm of vengeance. This is not Jesus pronouncing judgment. Listen to portions of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Jesus is quoting from a psalm of praise. Could Jesus actually be quoting this because he wants it to be a reminder of God's love and care and blessing for his people? I don't know about you, but for me, going from the story of the landowner to quoting Psalm 118 was just a huge shift for me. And I've put a quote in your bulletin that I think helps to explain that it isn't quite as big a shift for Jesus as it is maybe for us. In his book, Kingdom, Grace, Judgment, Robert Farrer Capon says this, when Jesus asks, have you never read the scriptures, referring to Psalm 118, he's continuing to drive home the point that the Old Testament, to which he is referred to by his allusions to the vineyard and to the prophet, promises his kind of Messiah, not theirs. Jesus is, quite clearly, Jesus is saying quite clearly that not only is his own mild authority unacceptable to their unfaith, it is also, and nevertheless, in its very unacceptability, the cornerstone of their salvation, even though they will not trust it. In other words, they have been unable to recognize who Jesus is because their view of the Messiah is so wrong. And it's the thing about Jesus that they need to understand, that he's the one full of authority and full of humility to the point of death, 
that that's exactly what they need to be saved. It's simple, and yet it's complicated. So let me say that again. They've been unable to recognize who Jesus is because their view of the Messiah is so wrong. And it's that thing about Jesus that they need to understand, that he's full of authority and humility to the point of death. And that's exactly what they need to be saved. So this isn't a huge shift for Jesus. It's a continuation of the lesson that he's been teaching. So he goes on to say to these leaders, but because the stone has been rejected, God will in fact take his kingdom from you and give it to those who produce fruit. This stone which you have rejected will ultimately be what destroys you. And then I think we have what is the saddest verse of all in verse 45. The chief priests and elders knew this was about them and they wanted to arrest him, but they didn't because they were afraid of the people. It's important to point out this is not a parable about the Israelites as a whole rejecting Jesus and the message of the gospel now being given to the, to the Gentiles. This is a message specifically for the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the elders. And so before these leaders is the moment, the moment of salvation, the moment of repentance, the moment to change everything. It was staring in them in the face and rather than let, that, let it break them down so they could be built into God's kingdom, they used it as fuel for their fire to keep rejecting Jesus. This is just after Jesus had told the parable of the two sons, and he said to the elders, even after you saw this, you did not repent. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, he could have said it again. Even after you hear this, you do not repent. I do want to say something about verse 44, which is the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. I would encourage you to think of this as descriptive and not prescriptive. This is not a proclamation that Jesus will go around looking to crush or to break into pieces anyone who rejects him. But the fact of the reality is that in rejecting Jesus, those people will ultimately be destroyed, those who reject him. So you're standing on the outskirts of the temple. You're curious, you're listening, you're waiting. And what you have heard is a story of rejection. Rejection of the agreement between the landowner and the tenant. Rejection of the landowner's servants. Rejection of the son, the heir. Rejection of tradition. Tradition would say they will not inherit the land. And I said a while ago, I get back to the idea of inheritance that Jesus used in this parable. And one commentator put it this way. He said, the tenants got so used to being stewards of the land, they forgot they did not own it. But what if we put it this way? The chief priests and elders got so used to being stewards of the law, of faith in God, they forgot they didn't own it. And by Jesus reminding them that the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone for all that God is, will build is clearly saying, this is not rejection of a random son. This is rejection of God's son, which is in fact rejection of God and his kingdom. And in doing so, the tenants, the rejectors, will become the rejected. The landowner will give the vineyard to the ones who accept and do not reject. Unfortunately, if you were standing on the outskirts of the temple that day, you may have gotten swept up in the crowd. 
And just a few days later, you may be one of the ones yelling, crucify him. But you're not. You're here today. And the message is simple. Receive and accept Jesus as the Son of God. But I know that for most of you today, you've been followers of Jesus in some way or another for a long time. And so I have to admit, I kind of struggled. What kind of a takeaway is there for you in this message? It kind of feels to me like this parable is, is layers. As we peel back each layer, we get to the simplicity of the message. First, there's a layer of our modern day thinking, which makes it hard to understand part of this. And we peel that back and we get to the layer of the allusions and the references to Jewish custom, the Old Testament references. And then once we get a handle on that, we peel it back to the core. The simple message that Jesus is the Messiah. And all he's asking for in this parable is faith. He isn't asking for fruit. He isn't asking for you to jump through a million different hoops. He's just asking for faith. So as we wrap up finishing and looking at this passage, I'm reminded that there's not a moral in every Bible story. I've said this before and I'll keep saying this. The Bible is not a collection of fables with a moral at the end of each one. In this parable, Jesus definitely wanted the chief priests and elders to see that he is the son. He is the one the father sent for them to believe. He is the stone the builders reject. But for some of us at some level, most of us already know this. And I think it's possible that for some of us, maybe it was just to get a better understanding of this passage, which could be extremely helpful, especially if it shifts in any way your image of God. But there's really no pretty bow to tie up this message. Instead, I'm going to leave you with a few thoughts or questions that may be what God is directing your attention to this morning. As you pay attention to this parable this morning, does it change your view of God or Jesus in any way? Remember when I said the elders gave their answer to the question that Jesus asked because it was from their perspective, not God's. I wonder, is there a perspective about someone or something that maybe you need to shift so that it's more like God's? How or where are you rejecting the truth of Jesus? How or where are you making your faith too complicated? Maybe it's just a call for you to simplicity. I want to show you something. Here's a stack of books I have about discipleship, about prayer, about following Jesus. And I think there is a ton of value in reading and learning more about Jesus and his love for me and how I live in response to that love. But at the end of the day, it's about faith. It's about simple faith. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who left everything to humble himself to be exactly the Messiah that no one expected, the one who was despised and rejected. He came as the Messiah for you and for me. So we get to move into a time of communion, a time in which we remember that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
shall have eternal life.